0: The self-help section of any bookstore is my favorite because it's pretty humorous. And it's like there's always a new title. And recently, some of the titles have gotten pretty vulgar and have, like, they're using curse words now in these titles. Um, But I've always wondered, like, how many self-help books are, and I'll go into Amazon and I'll look, and it's always, like, the number of results is always creeping up. And I had never looked into um, how much money we as Americans spend on self-help. I want to share some of these uh, some of this research with you. Um, there's a self-help market. I didn't know that there was a market for this, but um, the self-help market would include books, audio books for people who don't have time to sit down and read, motivational speaking, personal coaches, dieting, any way we as Americans spend money on making us look better, feel better, or be better is under the, the market of the self-help market. Last year, this is the most recent numbers that I could find, is that that market was valued at 10 billion dollars annually in the United States of America alone 10 b i B-I-L-L-I, l l i o n billion 10 billion Americans spend every year on making ourselves feel better or be better or look better for reference point uh, about 10 I don't know if these numbers are accurate more about 10 years ago is estimated it would cost 4 billion to bring fresh, clean drinking water to every person on the planet, which is the same number Americans spend on ice cream every year. But if we can, get, if we can spend four billion and bring fresh water to everybody, um, Americans spend more than double that every year. By the year 2022, in three years, it's expected to grow to 13 billion. Self-help books alone account for $800 billion a year. And self-help audiobooks brings in $769 million a year. So if you take the traditional form of books and the audio form of books and you put them together just for self-help, not any other thing, just self-help books brings in to Amazon over $1.5 billion every year by Americans alone. That's a lot. If you ever wondered how Amazon can afford to give you free two-day shipping or free same-day shipping nowadays. You have, a hun- you have 1.5 billion answers to that question. There's no saying that says data doesn't lie. What is the data? <coughs> uh, what does $10 billion a year tell you? What it tells me is that producers and consumers alike all recognize that something's wrong. There's a problem with us, there's a problem with life, there's a problem with our existence, and we spend 10 billion every year trying to fix it. There's a lot of explanations and theories out there on what exactly is wrong with our world and with us, and there's a lot of people saying this is how you fix it. Winky Prattney said the Bible is a unique record of our problem God's answer—the good news of salvation from sin through Jesus. When I look at the ten billion dollar self-help market, I always think of, you know, well, the Bible's telling us what's wrong, and the Bible clearly gives us from cover to cover God's answer to what's wrong. But we'd rather spend ten billion dollars fixing ourselves. And uh, one of the things I love about Orthodox Christianity is it doesn't do away with pain. There's some some religions. Um, ignore pain, or they just say, you know, it's not there, just, you know, strive for nirvana, or there's a lot of different religions that try to struggle with and deal with how do you get rid of pain. What I appreciate about the Holy Scriptures is from the very beginning, it presents to us that our life has pain, our life has loss. There's, as we'll see, quote, thorns and thistles in our life, And it gives us an explanation for it. And more than that, it tells us that God meets us in the thorns and thistles. God meets us in the pain. God meets us in the loss. Uh, The Psalm says, God is near to the brokenhearted. James, the, the bunk brother of Jesus would say, pure religion is not church attendance. It's looking after widows and orphans in their affliction while keeping yourself unstained from the world. And so that's one of the things I like about the Bible. Sometimes um, if we have any semblance of health and wealth gospel in our life, which basically says, in my paraphrase, the more God loves you, the healthier you are. The more God loves you, the wealthier you are, the happier you are, which is not the gospel. Um, The whole record of the Bible is people who loved God and that God loved, suffered, and, you know, we have the apostles all gave their lives for the faith. That's not health and wealth, if you ask me. Um, But the thing I love about the scriptures is that we're not cosmic pets. Just because you love God, just because God loves you, doesn't mean that you're exempt from loss or pain or from hard work or from sickness or whatever. It's part of the deal. But God has an answer for it. So the past few weeks, we've talked pretty positively about God. In the beginning, God worked. And we, my point, and that was that work existed before the fall, and work isn't a curse. Some people think work's a curse. It's not existed before the curse. Uh, last week, I got to teach my favorite verse, Ephesians 2.10, and uh, that we're created for good works. And if you've been paying attention, you're like, yeah, but work is hard. Family is hard, relationships is hard, living is hard. There's an old song by Jars of Clay that says it, it's, um, uh, it refers to the, the work that goes into just our breathing. It's, it's all this breathing that's taking all this work is the line in one of their songs. So what we'd like to do today is look at um, where the scriptures give answer to is where the pain comes from. So would you turn to Genesis chapter I know you might have a hard time finding it. It's page two. It's the only joke in today's sermon, and it failed massively. Genesis chapter three. We're going to spend the rest of our time. It's dawning on you. Good. In Genesis three. Now, here's uh, a little bit. I want to pull back the curtain a little bit of what my intentions have been is what my plan was is to the first week show how we... um, how, how God's a worker. And then my intentions were last week in, uh, to show Genesis 2 and how God has created us to work and, and how, he, how he blesses man and woman and gives us uh, a responsibility. And then I wanted to this week talk about Genesis 3. So this whole really series is rooted in the pattern and the truths that we get in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But as I was studying last week, what I felt God speaking to me on was Ephesians 2, not Genesis 2. And so um, while there's a lot of connections between Genesis 2 and Ephesians 2, I camped out mostly in um, Ephesians 2. So um, if, you, if you haven't read Genesis 2 ever or lately, I would encourage you to, to do that soon. I'd like to paraphrase just a couple of things because as we jump into the, like, the deep, dark sobriety of Genesis 3, I think it's helpful that we have something to contrast it with. Um, and, and Genesis 2 is awesome. Um, God loves humanity enough to give humans Nearly unrestricted access to everything he has made. He gives, he loves us enough to give us meaningful purpose in our life and in our work. He loves us enough to bring us into partnership with him, to join him in the business he's doing, and then he loves us enough to give us companionship. We don't go it alone. He gives us um, partners. He gives Adam Eve. And they're true companions. It's even hard, as we read this, um, we're so steeped in the culture of competition between men and women because of how the fall has just broken everything. But in Genesis 2, there's not competition. They are true companions, not hiding anything, not competing for anything, working as two sides of the same coin In Genesis 2.15, it says the Lord God took man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Before the fall, before sin, God put man in the garden and said, you got a job to do. Now, um, I kind of grew up with this idea that Eden was perfect and that Adam was there just to not mess it up. And uh, I came across some language that kind of describes Um, what what most people believe Eden to be like from a, a hipster pastor in Portland named John Mark Comer. I can't improve on his language. I'm just gonna read it to you. He says, the garden was dynamic, not static. Put another way, creation was a project, not a product. The garden was designed to go somewhere. God's vision was for the order and artistry and beauty of Eden to spread out over the whole earth and human was the one entrusted with that job. To quote, fill the earth with the garden's reality of God's beauty. When you think of Eden, don't think of a public park with a lawn, a playset, and a flower bed or two, where God hands Adam a lawnmower and says, Keep it tidy, will you? Think of a violent, untamed wilderness teeming with beauty, but no infrastructure, no roads, no bridges, no cities, no civilization. And God says to Adam and Eve, Go make a world. Adam wasn't a landscape maintenance employee. He was an explorer, a cartographer, a gardener, a designer, an architect, a builder, an urban planner, a city maker. Pretty, much changes your view of Eden in Genesis two when we see that God gets it started and then he brings man and woman and he goes, all right, now go develop this. Bring it to the world. Fill the earth with my image and with my beauty. At the very end of Genesis 2, there's two great verses in 24 and 25 that you've probably heard a portion of it quoted at a wedding. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, not two people competing, one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, we live in such a sensual culture, we read that last verse, and we read into that, and it, it's hard to not read that and think um, in terms of sexuality because of how we view nakedness and shame. I think what, what, I, what I read when I hear that they were naked and unashamed, which is an important phrase because we'll see the undoing of it in the, in the chapter we're about to read, but all it means is they had such a mutual relationship that there was no, um, there were no devices and no need to control the gaze of other people. If Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed, it means that they have no need to control what the other person sees and thinks. How much of, um, how much of our lives is living naked, and ashamed in that we control and are obsessed with how people view us. Even on simple, like I, um, I had to ask Shari, I said, did I wear this shirt last week? I picked this out this morning. Because I, I was like, I don't want to accidentally wear the same, you know, shirt seven days away from each other, and, you know, because what would you think if I wore the same shirt? This way? You know, I'm like, I gave mental energy to that this morning and kind of, you know, like not in a mischievous way, but I was concerned, like, well, it's Shari's favorite color. She'll like it. You know, and how much of our life, how much of social media is controlling what other people see? All right, Genesis 3, let's read it. We're going to carve through this, it's going to be a lot of fun. Verse 1, Genesis 3. Now, here, here's the, 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 the contrast to two. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. That the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So here's a few things that I'd like for you to. Grasp in these first three verses. First of all, um, we get the image prior to this chapter that God has asked Adam to rule over the animals and to speak over them, to name them. And that was God's call for humans was to rule over the earth, to exercise authority and dominion and leadership over the earth. And, and one of the ways you do that is by speaking over and kind of naming and giving identity to the animals. And what what should stand out to you is that the first verse of chapter 3 is that that's inverted. The plan in 1 and 2 chapters of Genesis is that man and woman would rule over animals and speak over them, but Genesis 3.1 has the opposite. They're not ruling over animals. We have an animal speaking to them and speaking over them and exercising influence over them, which is not how God had set this up. That's what should stand out. And then um, I write in my Bible, and I would encourage you if you have a Bible to, um, very important. At the end of uh, verse one, he says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And I wrote next to that, no, (laughs) with an exclamation point. I'll show it to you if you want to see it. Because that's not what he said. He said, you may surely eat, in uh, chapter 2, verse 16, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden but this one. And so it's one of the, this is actually one out of three times that the voice of the enemy ever shows up in Scripture. His, um, His works show up everywhere in the Scripture. There's only three times that his voice shows up. It's here. It's in Job, and it's in Luke 4 when he's tempting Jesus. In Genesis 1, he is slandering um, God to man. In Job, he's slandering man to God. And in Luke 4, he's slandering the God-man. Only three times. And one of the tricks that the enemy has up his sleeve is to take what God says and twist it, which is why you should know the scriptures. This is what he did to Jesus. He's, he um, quotes the scripture wrongly to him out of context, and Jesus knows the scriptures enough to correct him. This is not what God said. And then um, Eve gets it wrong as well. She says, um, no, God said, we should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. That's not what God said. He didn't um, say anything about touching it. So she's kind of adding here. So the the serpent is twisting God's word and misquoting, and Eve is kind of adding to it. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, there's this fascinating connection from these verses to the verses we showed last week in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. If you remember the prayer in Ephesians 1, Paul was saying, I want the Father of glory to give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Eve is doing the opposite of that. Instead of asking the Lord God to give wisdom and revelation, she says that tree looks like I could get wisdom and revelation. And so she goes and she takes it. God doesn't have a problem with us having wisdom and revelation and knowledge. He has a problem with the means in which we get it. It was his intention to um, to give it. And it's what he does today. He gives us wisdom and revelation. And what we see here is this, this connection from Genesis 3 to Ephesians 1 and 2. Just the, 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 the theme of... Uh, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that Paul says that he prays that the Spirit would enlighten the eyes of your heart. Really fascinating stuff for you to do a deep dive there. Verse 7, the eyes of both were opened. There's that connection again. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So here's here's that. Remember, uh, chapter 2 ends with, there's no need to control the other's gaze. And what? Seven verses into chapter 3, we see them manufacturing things to control how people see one another. I, um, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of good in technology and in the internet and in social media, and, and we see lots of examples how that can be leveraged for good. We don't have to think, we don't have to use our imagination to see how, how we do verse 7 here all the time. I mean, how much do we use social media to sow fig leaves? It's just a lot of the fig leaves here they are digital. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. There, it, it was a custom that they would have relationship with the Lord, and they would spend time with the Lord, and they would walk with God. But because of their rebellion and their sin, and because they, instead of exercising leadership over the animals, they allowed this animal to exercise leadership over them. They were filled with shame. They start controlling the gaze of of each other, and now when God shows up, they feel shame. They feel guilt. They are afraid, and they hide. Instead of wanting to commune with their maker, and enjoying communion with their maker, they hide. The very garden that was a place of peace, rest, work, and delight is now a place of fear, shame, and relational trauma. Think of that. I've, I've experienced this some in, in church. There's times where, um, where a church can be a place of delight and peace in communion with God and communion with one another sometimes because of sin, because we're imperfect. When we don't uh, go in the way of the kingdom, the very place that was a place of peace becomes a place of shame and relational trauma when we don't walk in the ways of God. Uh, <laughs> John Mark Comer says, fatigue, burnout, back pain, ibuprofen, strife, litigation, greed, waste, poverty, injustice, and wishing you had more vacation time all of this comes in the wake of Eve's first bite. There's or $10 billion in a market that is trying to explain what's wrong and how to fix it. And what Genesis 3 says is this is the point when things went off the rails. Uh, now, it's going to get heavier. <laughs> Verse 9 is pretty amazing. But the Lord God called to the man... And said to him, "Where are you?" I I love to teach on this because as a kid I thought, "Okay, God, how, how'd you lose Adam? There's like there's only two of them at this point, point. and uh, if you're a, if you're God and you lost like two, I'm not sure how much of God you are. If if like this is a big question and." All we know is obviously God did not lose Adam and Eve. This is an incredible uh, picture of God's grace, okay? At the greatest moment where humanity blew it, God does not come in with anger. He does not come in with um, a harsh gavel. He does not come in with lightning bolts as Zeus may do. You know what he comes in with? He comes in with a gracious question. Adam, where are you? Not because he needs to know where Adam is, but because the invitation is for Adam to be honest. That's the grace of the question, where are you? Um, in Lent, when we, when we celebrate Lent, this is, this is the point of Lent. Like Lent is, where are you? That's it. That's the point. It's not about whether you can have fish on Fridays or not. Like that's not the point of Lent. Lent is 40 days answering the question that God asks us, where are you? This is one reason why we, uh, we have a confession time after worship every Sunday. I know some people didn't grow up with that. Um, and, that and that's all confession is. Confession is a time where, the, where God comes to us, we're in his presence, and instead of feeling shame and controlling the gaze of other people, we say, where are you? God says, where are you? And, just, and for that moment, you at least have a couple of minutes to begin to answer the question, where are you with God? Where are you with other people? Uh, you know confession is a great spiritual discipline. You should probably do it at least morning, noon, and night at least. Um, and when we instilled this uh, spiritual discipline a couple years ago, it was because you know you could easily walk in here and not have con- not have confessed at all. I mean, uh, without doubt there's people here right now or who are listening online who haven't stopped to consider. Their sins, their trespasses with other people, and so, as long as I'm here, at least once a week, you're going to get the opportunity to hear the question from God: "Where are you?" That's kind of in this verse, verse ten. Here's uh, here's Adam, and just watch how quickly he can't take responsibility. He says, "I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself." He said. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I've commanded you not to eat? And then he says, verse 12, the woman you gave me to be here, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So, right here, immediately he blames God. This is your fault because you're the one who, who brought Eve here. And then he blames Eve. And there's there's no sense of of responsibility. It's like, you know what? You asked me to lead the animals and to speak over them, and I was, I don't know, playing Halo while the snake came in. I don't know what I was doing. My bad. No capacity for that. And and he has the audacity to say, God, this one that you brought in here, oh, man. What's amazing, and I always tell people, hey, when you got questions, you can shake your fist at God. He can handle it. We see that here, like, God's not phased with with this. He has so much grace. Verse 13, um, then God, he turns, the interrogation turns to the woman. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So again, she's shifting blame to the serpent as well. So the interrogation continues to the serpent. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And verse 15, really important. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and because of your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Um, Genesis uh, 3.15 is what theologians call the proto-evangelium, the big word, a $15 word. And proto, first, evangelum, gospel. It's what's called the first gospel. 315 of Genesis is the first time the good news of Jesus Christ that God will be the one that fixes it, is ever spoken. And it's spoken not to Adam and not to Eve, but to the enemy. Like, What do you do? I don't know even what you do with that. Is that the first time the gospel is preached is to the enemy? That's pretty amazing. I mean, go meditate on that. What, What does that mean? But 315 is this first gracious, um, if you ever watched The Passion, there's a scene in there. I think it's at the beginning when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and the snake's coming and he gets up and his heel, he steps on the head of the snake, my favorite scene of that movie. And they're, and, uh, they're pointing to this verse that he will um, that, that bruise your head. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. And in pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What I'd say there is because of the fall, there is now pain in the family. There's now pain in children. There's now pain in wanting to have children, trying to have children. There's now pain in uh, husband and wife relationships. There's now pain with how men relate to women. That there's pain in the family. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were you were taken. Maybe you've heard this at a funeral. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And because I'm a preacher, I'll say with with the letter F, the family is cursed and the field is cursed. In in the two places we do most of our work, in the in our family, in our relationships, and also in the field. It's hard. It's, it's unproductive. It's not as efficient. There's thorns and thistles. There's a sharp pain. There's a beautiful rose. You go to grab it, there's a sharp pain. Not because God designed it that way, but because there was a fall. There was rebellion. There was sin. Now, um, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam... And for his wife, garments of skin and clothed them. Which is this great kind of foreshadowing to being, the New Testament is talking about being clothed with Christ. Uh, Garments of skin, that there would have to be an animal sacrifice to cover our sin. This theme is beginning to build here in verse 21. Um, Now some people look at this and go, how could God do all this? Why does not he just reset it and start all over for whatever reason in God's wisdom and because of his love, he doesn't come in and say, Adam and Eve, you've messed this up. How are you going to fix it? He comes in, and what I want you to hear, he comes in with graceful questions. He comes in with an invitation to be honest and to come clean. He, he brings judgment because there has to be for justice, but then he says, I'm going to take care of your shame. I'm going to take care of your nakedness. I'm going to kill the first animal. I'm going to make, we can do better than fig leaves. I'm going to make clothes for you. And it's the grace of God that does that. Now, here's the grace of verses 22 through the end. Um, God Had put some boundary. He gave he gave them almost unrestricted access. Okay, but they crossed the boundary. The first boundary they crossed was going and taking wisdom. But there's another boundary that the enemy wanted them to cross, and that was eternal life. This is part of what he says to Eve: is that you will not surely die; you will have eternal life if you grab this. And this is the boundary God will not let them cross. Verse 22, he said, uh, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life in Eden and live forever. That's not something God want. God, God doesn't want man and woman to live forever in this state. And so because of his love, this is what he does. He sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the theme of Ephesians 1 and 2, that God wants to give you wisdom, and that he wants you to know the resurrected life that he wants to give you. In Genesis 2 and 3, we see... In Genesis 3, we see man and woman trying to get the things that God has said, I'll give you. And this is our existence. This is our, this is our life. We, we, we try to look to work. We try to look to family for happiness, for joy and peace. And, and while there is some of that in there and there is some fulfillment for sure, there is a peace and a wisdom and a fulfillment and a life that God wants you to have but it's on the basis of his grace, not the basis of you going and taking it into your own hands. As we come come to the altar this morning, this is what I want to leave you with. Is that the best things that God has for you are gifts of grace. The most being the gift of his son, eternal life given for you. And you don't snatch it. You don't have to snatch it. You don't have to earn it. This is why we call it a table of grace. Um, This is why we say um, we receive communion. We don't take communion. You don't go and take Jesus. He's here. You receive it. There's a big difference in taking something and receiving it. I know this is a heavy sermon. I know you woke up thinking, I hope we talk about the fall today in a somber way for 30 minutes. But for me, when I encounter pain in work, when I encounter pain in life, when I encounter dreams that turn into nightmares, when, when I encounter loss and pain, Genesis 3 actually brings a comfort to me because now I have a, a, a reason for why this stuff exists. And in the midst of the fall of Genesis 3, we see a God who doesn't come in angry. He doesn't come in with lightning bolts. He comes in with gracious questions and he comes in with provision and he comes in with protection. He protects us from more things that would harm us and and, and he provides for us the life that we need. Lord, oh, how we need to know the deep, inappropriately sobering truth of how you are God and we aren't. And that our souls and our life in this world suffers a terminal sickness called sin. And there's no way out of it in our provision. The only way to be set free from the shame and the guilt and the fear and the nakedness of our condition is to allow you to cover us, to clothe us with Christ. Lord, it makes sense that this is why The scriptures would say we are raised in Christ. We are raised with Christ. We are seated with Christ because he is the garment that covers all all of it. And not just covers it, but washes it away and removes it. So, would we come with our hearts. We come with the pain of work, the pain of life, the pain of broken dreams, the pain of sickness, would we come with the pain of childbearing, pain of infertility, the pain of deaths and loss and tragedy? Would we bring it all to you? We bring you every ounce of Genesis 3 that is in us. And we ask for your grace. God, we ask for a fresh pouring out of your Spirit on us today. Lord, we invite you to challenge us in the ways in which we need to be challenged. And God, we invite you to encourage us and build us up in the ways that we need to be encouraged. For those who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus, as we come to you, I ask that you would pour out your rest. But for those who are filled with shame and guilt, God, I ask you would remove that from them. Thank you for the truth, God, that you make beautiful things out of tragedies, out of brokenness, out of the dust. Come, Lord Jesus.